Well, Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. Let's pray first. Uh, Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Daniel. Uh, Father, I'm really being inspired by how he lived before you. Help us all to have the desire to be in that sense, like Daniel, in whatever arena we find ourselves in. And so, Father, by your spirit, I ask that you will use your word tonight to really make a difference in all of our lives. And then I thank you for Jesus as we, right after we come to the end of the sermon, remember the cost of our incredible salvation together in communion. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, chapter 10 and 11 of Daniel normally go together, but we'll study both chapters separately. An angel appears to Daniel revealing to him forward history from the Medo-Persian period in which he was now living until God's kingdom comes. And so Daniel 10, verse 1, reads this way. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel. He's writing it this way to just make sure you understand that Daniel is the one that is writing this. He gets personal in just a minute. And then it mentions, given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. That was his Babylonian name. And you'll remember, if we go back, I guess, to chapter 2, where Meshach, Shadrach, and Abengo, that was his three friends, that was their Babylonian <coughs> name. I can't remember their Jewish name. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I think that's it. And uh, also, it had to do a little bit with, with uh, food and commitment, where Daniel and his three friends who were being chosen to be in an important part of the government, really, uh, made it clear that they wouldn't eat the king's food, and so they chose not to, and they trusted God. And so we saw, right from the start, Daniel and his friends, clearly Daniel was the leader of his friends in that sense, we saw their commitment to the God of heaven, regardless of what it would mean in their lives. They'd already had a, terrific, a terrible time because they had been in Jerusalem and <clears throat> the Babylonians come in, they ruined the temple, tore it down and, and exiled thousands upon thousands of people into Babylon. <clears throat> and uh, they did a lot of nasty things to them. And so uh, they were still going to, at least Daniel and his three friends, uh, they were still going to obey God no matter what. So, verse 1 again, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar, and its message was true, and it concerned a great war. Now, the underlying word here uh, in the Hebrew language suggests a long period of time with strenuous conflict for the Jewish people. I'm reading a lot into that because I know the whole chapter, and that's the uh, next week especially, we'll really learn what the Great War is all about. So the understanding of the message came to Daniel in a vision. At that time, it reads, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. Three weeks. And I ate no choice food 
No meat or wine touched my lips. And I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. This is pretty intense if you really think about it. And by the way, as we come along here, Daniel was with some of his friends when he had this vision. Now, the vision occurred in 536 or 535 B.C., two years after Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, came to Daniel in chapter 9 and gave the 70 weeks prophecy that we studied last time. Daniel was nearly 90 years old, still serving the Lord, since a teenager in exile. Many of the Jews have now returned to their homeland, but many had stayed behind. I would suggest that those who stayed have been inspired by Daniel and his leadership. He clearly was more committed to God's will for him in Babylon than returning to the place he had been praying for most of his life. And besides that, he was not in love with the world, but in obedience to God's call. I imagine he believed he could be more helpful to his people while staying in Babylon. One commentator said, well, he's an old man. He's 90 years old. He couldn't go back anyhow. He's too frail. Give me a break. This man uh, would not have let anything stop him if he was supposed to go back to Jerusalem. But he did have friends with him, so they were probably helping him somewhat. Uh, the great war Daniel refers to here are the wars, plural, that we read about in chapter 11 and the spiritual warfare that stands behind them. If we're going to have a biblical view of life, we must never forget that there is a spiritual realm of angels and demons behind what is going on in our world. And this chapter will give us a glimpse into that reality. But this also serves as an exhortation to all of us to understand what it means to put on the full armor of God, which is from the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians, or another way to say exactly the same thing, to be filled with the Spirit. Now, the word filled is, is fine from the original language, and especially in the Greek Bible, but the word controlled is better. We're to be controlled by the Spirit. We all have the Holy Spirit, but uh, the Holy Spirit still, we need to depend upon His ability, He's God, to control our lives, and, and we must allow that to happen in our lives. Now, a good question to ask here at this point is why Daniel was mourning. Why was he so intense in his prayer? Well, I believe that Daniel was concerned about the opposition that had arisen regarding the rebuilding of the temple. And the people had stopped. Ezra, the prophet, had said this would happen. The people had stopped rebuilding the temple. In Ezra chapter 4, we read this. <clears throat> then the local residents tried to discourage and frighten the people of Judah, that's in the southern kingdom, to keep them from their work of rebuilding the temple. So they bribed agents to work against them and to frustrate their plans. And this went on during the entire reign of King Cyrus of Persia and lasted until King Darius of Persia took the throne. Darius was the one that had sent 
Daniel into the lion's den. If you'll remember that, he didn't want to do that, but uh, that had happened. And uh, so the work on the temple of God in Jerusalem had stopped, and it remained at a standstill until the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia. Now, I am personally challenged with the intensity of Daniel's prayers. It tells us what he cares about when you even think why he's praying. There's another example. Nehemiah was a prayer person like Daniel. And in the beginning of Nehemiah, we've studied it here a number of times, uh, in the beginning of Nehemiah, some of his friends come to Susa where he is. It's sort of like the Florida of the time. Uh, they were the uh, ones coming from up north over to there. What do they call those people that do that? What's it, what is it is again? Snowbirds. Oh. Well, they were snowbirds. Anyhow, they came, and when Nehemiah saw them, he was so glad to see him, and he said, what's going on back in Jerusalem? I'm so excited. I understand the temple's being built. And they said, no, it isn't. It's all stopped. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4, reminds you of what we see in Daniel here. He said, when I heard this, I sat down and wept. I mean, he had it made where he was. Why are you weeping? That's their problem. No, no. These are his people. In fact, for days, it says, Nehemiah says, I mourned, I fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. This idea of fasting is a unique idea. Uh, today, we don't talk about it much. Um, you can always tell if a pastor fasts or not because if he never talks about it and never teaches about it, he mustn't. So Matthew chapter 9, <laughs> verse 14 and 15. One day the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus. These aren't Jesus' disciples. These are John the Baptist's disciples. And they asked him, why don't your disciples fast like we do and the Pharisees do? And Jesus replied, do wedding guests mourn while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they'll fast. Now, you realize what he's saying. He's saying, but sometime I, he's the groom, I will be taken away. I'll be cut off. I'll be crucified. And uh, then they'll fast. And when you read the Sermon on the Mount especially, Jesus makes a comment in one part of the Sermon on the Mount where he says, when you pray, when you fast, when you give. He's just assuming that those things are going to be done by us. So Daniel's fast was what we would call a partial fast. Daniel gave up meat and ate only vegetables. He stopped his daily grooming, and uh, he didn't comb his hair every day and shower, and he prayed instead. And then when the three weeks were finished, he went back to his total diet of meat and vegetables again. But three weeks, he gave all of that up because he was so disturbed at what was happening to his country. That's how much he cared about it. Biblically, there was only one time a year that the Jews were to fast. It was the Day of Atonement. All the other fasts were voluntary. But when we read through the Bible and see Daniel and Moses and David and Paul and others fasting, 
I guess we should consider this discipline for ourselves. A.W. Tozer wrote an essay with the title, God Tells the Man Who Cares. If you haven't read Tozer, it doesn't matter what you read. It'll always disturb you. So read any of his books. They're fabulous. Here's what he wrote. The Bible was written in tears and two tears it will yield its best treasures. God has nothing to say to the frivolous man. It was to Moses, a trembling man, that God spoke on the mountain. And that same man later saved the nation when he threw himself before God with the offer to have himself blotted out of God's book for Israel's sake. Daniel's long season of fasting and prayer brought Gabriel from heaven to tell him the secret of the centuries. When the beloved John, this is uh, John in the book of Revelation, who wrote the book of Revelation, John the Apostle, when the beloved John wept much because no one could be found worthy to open the seven-sealed book, one of the elders comforted him with the joyous news that the lion of the tribe of Judah had prevailed. That's Jesus. The psalmist often wrote in tears. The prophets could hardly conceal their heavy-heartedness. And the apostle Paul, in his otherwise joyous epistle to the Philippians, broke into tears when he thought of the many who are enemies of the cross of Christ and whose end was destruction. Those Christian leaders who shook the world were one and all men of sorrows whose witness to mankind welled out of heavy hearts. There is no power in tears per se, but tears and power ever lie close together in the church of the firstborn. Powerful statement. Well, verse 4, back to Daniel. On the 24th day of the first month, Daniel writes, as I, and he doesn't say it, but there were other people there with him, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up, and there before me, chapter 12, uh, we'll see that next time, or 11, chapter 12, tells us this person was in the air. So Daniel had to look up. The person was in the air. It wasn't just that he might have fallen down, but he had to look up. So I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen, that's a picture of holiness, a pure white color. Saints are dressed this way in the Revelation um, with a belt of fine gold from with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz from his waist, a symbol of a king or a judge. His body was like topaz, an almost transparent glow like gold. His face was like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, a very a fiery appearance. And his voice was like the sound of a multitude. You know what that's like, the sound of a multitude? It's like the sound of greeting one another during the Sunday morning services. There are times I don't want it to stop. <laughs> it just it sounds so awesome. That's the sound of a multitude. Well, the question here is this. Who was this? Who appeared to him? Well, based on Daniel's fear and what we have read even so far, I think this was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Now, some commentators believe it was an angel or even Gabriel or Michael, Michael the archangel. And they may be right, but let me make my case. 
Ezekiel chapter 1, starting at verse 26, reads this way. Above the expanse, over their heads, was what looked like a throne, a sapphire, and high above in the throne was a figure like that of a man. Ezekiel was writing this. I saw that from, I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, says Ezekiel, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. Or we can go to the Revelation in chapter 1, where we know for sure who it is. Starting at verse 12, John the Apostle is writing. He says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. That's the seven churches of chapter 2 and 3 of, of the book of Revelation. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and in a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire, and his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters, and in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. Many Bible translations just say, fear not. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. That's the crucifixion. And behold, I'm alive forever and ever. That's the resurrection. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. I think it's obvious who Daniel saw. Um, when I read all of this, I, I find myself personally perplexed. I spend a lot of time in preaching, making it clear that we're ha we can have a personal relationship with our Father, with the Lord Jesus Christ, and how great that is. And that's all true. I believe that it's obvious from the Scripture. But at the same time, when I read things like this, I think, but look at who I'm having this relationship with. I mean, this is, this is something to really think about. It's, it's, it should cause us to have a, a, a fear of God, the, the right kind of fear of God. And we'll often say the fear of God is really respecting God. True. But it's far more than that. It's being in awe that he would even want anything to do with me. And, yet, and, and so the, there's this pull in both directions. One, we all want to have this, oh, I have a relationship with Jesus. We're like, you know, brothers. He said we're brothers. We have that kind of relationship. But on the other hand, he is God. And he looked down on this earth and he saw what was happening and he, the Father sent his Son to die for our sins. That's why we do communion pretty regular here. So verse 7, back to Daniel. I, Daniel, 
was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it. But such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. They were terrified. Now, we see the same thing when Jesus stopped the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. It's in Acts chapter 9. And it reads, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Saul was a religious terrorist. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, the Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground. And he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. In other words, if we're persecuted, it's the same as persecuting Jesus because we're a child of God. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. And the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. So back to Daniel again, verse 8. So I was left alone. Those others had run away. Gazing at this great vision, I had no strength left. My face turned deadly pale, and I was helpless. And then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, and my face to the ground. The Apostle John had the same reaction in Revelation 1.17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. It's interesting to note that Daniel was fasting and praying at the time of Passover. He was remembering the deliverance of his people from Egypt, in other words, the Exodus. This was likely what sparked Daniel's intensity of prayer. I've already mentioned the location of this incident outside Babylon. It was probably about a 20-mile journey. Daniel had left the city with some friends to spend time searching after God. This is a good plan for all of us from time to time. Now the vision of Jesus has passed, and an interpreting angel comes along. Jesus would not uh, have been stopped from coming by any kind of spiritual warfare, as he will see, as we will see in the following verses. But this angel we now meet is not named, but is probably the angel Gabriel. So verse 10, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And the angel said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, remember that from last week? Consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. There's an aside, let me do an aside here. Daniel was almost 90, serving God in such a way that God is still recognizing the importance of his ministry. 
It should be the goal of all of us to be serving others until the trumpet sounds or we go. As for me, my desire is to persevere to the end by never giving up and never giving in. And I've said this so many times. It's one of my biggest fears that I would give up or give in. I just, I pray, God, don't ever let me do that. It's essential that Daniel listen carefully as what he was about to hear may have been confusing to him from his perspective. He was going to be told precisely what will happen in the future regarding world history. The exact fulfillment of this prophecy we'll, we'll, we'll look at next time. You'll be amazed. Chapter 11 is the one, that, my favorite chapter, Daniel, is just beyond doubt shows the truthfulness of the Bible, the amazing accuracy of biblical prophecy. A side point to all this is that it will be obvious that we are to study in chapter, that what we were to study in chapter 11 was fulfilled literally. Why would we not interpret all the prophecy in the book literally if it is possible to do so? I think last week we confirmed that possibility. Now, verse 12. Then he continued, the angel, do not be afraid. You could read it. Stop being afraid. Fear not, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind, or you could read that, your heart, to gain understanding and to humble yourself, a term for fasting, before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. I just wrote a little note in my, just thinking about this, and I'm going to talk about it again in a moment. God's delays regarding prayer are not God's denials. He always answers prayer as we would desire if we knew all that God knew. Verse 13. So, but the prince of Persia, or the Persian kingdom, Resisted me. This is the angel speaking. 21 days. 21 days. So you have some kind of spiritual war going on for 21 days. And then Michael, he says, Israel was entrusted to Michael's care. Chapter 12, verse 21 tells us that. One of the chief princes, then Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me because I was detained there with the king. Uh, the, the word is plural, probably representing demonic angels influencing earthly kings. The king of Persia. So let, let's talk about Michael, the angel, for a minute. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, it says, at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, the Jewish people. And then in Jude... New Testament, chapter 9, or verse 9. But even the archangel Michael, he's the only angel called an archangel, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against the devil, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So even he needed the power of the Lord. And Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 tells us, and there was war in heaven, Michael... And his angels 
fought against the dragon, that's Satan, and the dragon and his angels fought back. So we can see the spiritual battle going on. And in verse 21 of our present study, we again see that Michael has a special forces job regarding Israel. So here we have the spiritual realm opened up to us for a few verses. So when you watch the news and the reporter is worried that Iran might destroy Israel or any other political or military entity, don't worry. Nothing will stop Israel from being a nation until God's plan is worked out for his people. But we also see uh, there's another person here called the prince of the Persian kingdom. And we must, like, who is the prince of the Persian kingdom? Well, since no human person could possibly resist Gabriel, then this must also be an angel. But an evil angel or a fallen angel, this was a demon. And it's possible this was Satan himself as Persia ruled the world at that time, and it makes sense that Satan might have taken a special interest. So here's what we learn. Angels and demons are real. They influence political and world events. When we think of a, a Hitler or Saddam Hussein or Putin or go back to Antiochus, the fourth epiphanies of chapter 8 and again of chapter 11, when I hear about the leadership of Iran wanting to eliminate Israel, or I read of Herod killing the babies in an attempt to kill the Messiah, or when I look at a cross and think about Jesus, certainly we are seeing demonic influence. And as we move closer to the end, this will increase. The Antichrist is demon influence. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul writes, the coming of the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, will be in accordance with how Satan works. And he will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. So there is right now, as we're here tonight, an invisible war going on. Paul told us all about this in Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 10. We should all have this passage memorized so we can use it every day. It's, it reads, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. I, I memorized it in the power of his might in the version I first memorized it in. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Why? Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, here's what we're to do. Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. And then the armor of God is described by using the Roman soldier's army uh, for illustration purposes. We must put on the full armor of God, which is the same as being filled with the Spirit or controlled by the Spirit. And you can see the soldier there, the helmet of salvation. You have to be saved, of course. The, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth. Uh, he, he has the, the, the uh, shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And then he has a sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and he has the gospel shoes on. 
And the, that, what's the purpose of all that? He says, so that you can pray in, in the power of the Spirit, in every kind of prayer for everyone. And Paul says in Ephesians, especially pray for me. But we're to be men and women who live a life of prayer. Now, I want to make it clear that Satan is not God's opposite. Martin Luther was known for saying that the devil was God's devil. Demons are not stronger than God's will. God in his sovereignty has allowed demons a limited power. We see it in the book of Job, which we studied recently here. In Job chapter 1, verse 12, Satan and God are having sort of a challenge, a face-off. And Satan basically is saying, <laughs> he's saying, no wonder Job follows you. You've made him so rich and blessed him so much. You take all that stuff away and he won't follow you anymore. He'll curse you. So in Job chapter 1 verse 12, the Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And we come back again in Job chapter 2 verse 6, and we have the same thing going on because to the devil's chagrin, Job still was praying to God. And so he challenged him again. And the Lord said again to Satan, very well then, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. Nothing can happen to us unless it first goes through the hand of God. James has told us that if we resist the devil, he'll flee from us. James 4, 7, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And the Apostle John wrote these words, 1 John 4, 4. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. We have the Holy Spirit. So a Christian cannot be possessed or owned by demons. Nevertheless, we are to resist the spiritual evil around us or we might be unduly influenced by them. When I was in seminary, I asked Professor Dr. Matheson during uh, one of the classes at the end of a class, I asked him directly if there were such things as demons of alcoholism or demons of depression. I, would, I was hearing people say these things. Oh, he has a demon of drug abuse or whatever. Now, Dr. Matheson had extensive experience dealing in ministry to those who were oppressed by demons. And I like his answer. He said there were no demons of alcoholism. There were no demons of depression. He named the whole list. But demons are very perceptive. And if they see someone like me, I'm talking about myself now, who is predisposed to a melancholy-type mood. I mean, that's, that's a problem I have. I, I too often just go to that mood, you know. And uh, uh, Now, I don't have to, and I hate to say that because several people tonight saw a little picture of it. I said, I, I doubt 20 people will come tonight. There's no food. Several people said, I think you're wrong with the number. I said, yeah, you're right. Probably about 12 people will come tonight. 
And the devil's saying, yeah, you know, they, they don't ever come to hear you. And I said, no, they don't. They come to hear the word of God. And anybody that knows the word of God could be teaching it. So you see what a demon would do. A demon would try to push someone like me in that direction. Or if a demon sees someone who has a problem with alcohol in that direction, he, the demons know us better than we know ourselves. And they know how to get to us. Years ago, uh, when my mentor, Dr. Bill McRae, he just turned 90, was here uh, at the church, he preached a sermon on Ephesians 6. I still have the video of it, a VHS or whatever you call it, video, but I have no way of playing it. And uh, uh, he started off the sermon. Uh, he did chapter 6 of the book of Ephesians, suggesting that the first offense against being defeated by the demonic realm was to recognize that demons have schemes. You see, the, uh, we already read that in chapter 6, so that we can know the schemes of the devil. They have schemes. And uh, they have plans. And they're not for our good, but for evil. Therefore, he said, a good starting question in understanding all this is this. If I were a demon... How would I first attack me to defeat me? That's how you resist the devil. That's how you put yourself in a position uh, where you're not going to be fooled by the devil. In my case, it means I, I better not be alone too long. Uh, you know, if I went away on a fast for a week, maybe nobody would ever find me again. <laughs> in my case, it wouldn't be pornography or a temptation to power or money, but a temptation to discouragement. So the devil knows us, and then we need to learn about ourselves too. We need to know ourselves, and we need to know how to shore up against these things. One of the best ways is to read C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. And if you haven't read it, it's a delightful read. It's fun to read. It's, uh, he's a he was a brilliant writer, and he gets it just right. It's, a, it's, a, it's letters from Uncle Screwtape writing to his n nephew Wormwood, and the, the, it's hilarious at some points where he points out different things in church and how to get people to get upset at one another and all of this kind of thing. And it's really worth reading. Well, a final point here. What about this delayed answer to prayer? I said I wanted to talk about this again. Why would God allow a delay? I think we all wonder about that from time to time. Val and I pray for certain family members or others we care deeply about and often ask in our prayers, God, when are you going to answer us? We want to see the answer while we're still in the land of the living here. Maybe the delay in Daniel's case was to change something in his spiritual life. Maybe it was to confirm his level of commitment. Maybe it was to line up circumstance in order to answer the prayer in the best way. In any case, we know that God always hears our prayers, and if we understand his character, we also know he will answer our prayers better than we pray them. But the question is, do we pray? That's the question. Here's a, a poem. I've used it before, but it always convicts me. It's been a long time since I've used it. I got up early one morning, and I rushed right into the day. Oh, I had so much to accomplish that I didn't have time to pray. 
Problems just tumbled about me and heavier came each task. Why doesn't God help me, I wondered. And he answered, you didn't ask. I wanted to see joy and beauty, but the day toiled on gray and bleak. I wonder why God didn't show me. And he said, but you didn't seek. I tried to come into God's presence. I used all my keys at the lock, but God gently and lovingly chided, my child, you didn't knock. I woke up early this morning, and I paused before entering the day. I had so much to accomplish that I had to take time to pray. It's never a waste of time to pray. Well, verse 14. Now I have come, this is Daniel's hearing this from the angel. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people, the Jewish people. That's that 70 weeks prophecy in the future, in the future. For the vision concerns a time yet to come in the future. This is an eschatological expression in the latter days is another way of saying it. Daniel is still very frightened. So Gabriel, verse 15, while he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips and opened my mouth and began to speak. And I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I am helpless. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, O man highly esteemed. Peace, be strong now, be strong. And when he spoke to me, I, I was strengthened and said, Speak, my Lord, since you've given me strength. Do not be afraid. Be strong. If you open the book of Joshua, just in chapter 1, you see it over and over again. Do not be discouraged. Do not be afraid. The number one imperative in the Bible, used the, the one thing used most is just simply the words, fear not. In the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament and all through uh, both Testaments, Greek and Hebrew, we are not to be afraid. We're to be strong. We're to not be discouraged. There actually isn't any reason to be discouraged. So when I get discouraged, I know it's sin. It's unbelief. I need to confess it. Verse 20. So he said, do you know why I have come to you? Soon I'll return to fight against the prince of Persia. By the way, the Persian Empire lasted 200 more years. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first, I'll tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. The one in charge, member of, of the Jews. And in the first year of Darius the Mede... I took my stand to support and protect him. Now, what has happened to aged Daniel was so traumatic that the angel's trying to reassure him so even more can be told and remembered. And the book of truth, 
That's God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the rest of the world. And God has a plan, yes, for the world, a plan for history, and he has a plan for our individual lives. Psalms 139, 16. It's like a prayer. Your eyes saw my unformed body. In other words, God saw us before we were even being formed in the womb. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. There's no other way to understand just that, those two sentences except to understand that God knew us before we were born. He knew us in the womb. And he knows every day of our lives. He doesn't have to look ahead to see what we're going to do. He can't do that. He's God. He can't learn anything. He already knows everything. And so for us to be worried and to get all uptight about what's happening, I get, I get hugely sad what's happening in our country. I really care about this country. I came here on purpose, and I was so proud, and still am, to be an American. That was important to me. I care about it. And I do get sad. But God is in charge. And the best thing I can do, at least to start with, is pray and then do whatever he tells me to do. So this should really comfort us. So tonight, we are having communion together. Jesus was tempted by the devil when he first came to this earth. And there'll be terrible spiritual warfare before he returns again victoriously. Communion is our time to remember the cost of our great salvation. Jesus died so we can live until we die. I don't just mean we can be alive until we die. That's obvious. But live until we die. And we have the promises of God pictured in 1 Corinthians 10.13, for instance. It reads, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, when we are tempted, when I am tempted, he will show us a way out so that we can endure. The character of God, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, probably the most memorized verse for Christians in the Bible. And we know that in all things, that means all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So no matter what happens, it's always for God's glory and our good. Always. And then we have the assurance of heaven, Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave Jesus up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things. Uh, you can just simply add to it because that's what it's talking about. Give us all things to live, really live until we die and then live forever. We already are living forever, but then we'll live forever. As C.S. Lewis says, where every chapter in the next life is better than the last one. And so we're going to have communion together. And uh, you're, if you're a Christian, uh, you're welcome to have communion. You're a part of the body of Christ. And so you're welcome to have communion with us. And uh, if we can have our musician come back up again. Uh, there you are. I didn't see where you're sitting. And uh, <clears throat> then uh, we'll, like, we're going to stand in a moment for prayer. So we'll stand for, stand for prayer right now. And I'll pray for you. And then you can see that there's a place here and a place there. And is there a place in the back? I couldn't see. There's a place in the back. So 
you can come up and get the uh, elements and go back to your seat and, uh, and you can take a seat again and then we'll pray uh, through that as I read some scripture. So Father, I thank you for Daniel's example. Please make us men and women who mourn over what's happening in our country, what's happening around the earth these days and pray and even fast and, and who are willing to be used of you in any way that you want to use us. Thank you, Father, for loving the world enough to send Jesus. And thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross for the joy set before you, which is our salvation. And then, Holy Spirit, thank you for coming after Jesus rose and went back to heaven and indwelling all of us. Please help us to be part of even a great revival where you could turn things around so fast it would just shock everybody. But Father, we just want to know your will and you're not hiding it from us. Thank you for your word that you have given us. And thank you for this, these elements of the representing the body and blood of Jesus that we will take together in a moment to never forget to remember the cost of our free salvation, the cross in Jesus' name.